You know, sitting atop the U.S. Capitol building is a 20-foot statue that's known as the Freedom Lady. She was sculpted by an Italian artist in the city of Rome and shipped across the Atlantic Ocean to her perch there in Washington, D.C. But during the delivery, the ship was met by a fierce storm. And there were great winds and huge waves. And the skipper, the captain of the ship said, man, we need to start getting rid of some some cargo. So they start throwing stuff overboard. And the, the crew on the ship, they come after they've thrown a bunch of stuff overboard to grab this statue, the Freedom Lady statue. And the captain shouted, no, never. We'll flounder before we throw freedom away. And that really is the message of the book of Galatians. Never throw away your freedom. The book of Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of the doctrine of Christian liberty. It declares the total liberty in Christ from religious laws of Moses, emphasizing that freedom from sin is accompanied by freedom from the law and the doctrines of man. In fact, it was the great reformer, Martin Luther, who especially loved this letter. He called the book of Galatians Catherine. That was his wife's name. Because he said, I am married to her. I'm married to this book. And this letter really transformed his way of relating to God and became the catalyst for what we know as the Protestant Reformation. A little bit of background. Galatia is not a city. Like some of the places that Paul wrote letters to, like the Ephesians, where they lived in a city called Ephesus. But Galatia was not a city, but a region consisting not of one church, but of many churches that were in that region. In fact, notice in verse 2, he says he's writing to the churches, plural. And some of the cities that Paul ministered in that were in that region were Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, as well as Derbe. But the people of Galatia were originally a Celtic people. They came from the area of Gaul, which was present-day France, but they migrated south and they settled in this area, this region, which is now in present-day Turkey. History tells us that the Galatians were country folk, that they were kind of the hillbillies of that day and age. And some people even considered them to, they had a reputation for being barbarians. In fact, Julius Caesar declared this about the people of Galatia, that they are a fickle, they're fond of change, they, they can't be trusted. And in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we kind of see a little bit of an example of their barbarianism and their fickleness. It happens when Paul comes to the city of Lystra, and he heals a man there that was lame. And the people in Lystra, they go crazy. They think that Paul is a god, that he is the god Jupiter. They want to worship him, and he like stops them and ends up preaching the gospel to them. Well, that was in the morning. By evening, these men come, these these Jewish men who just hated Paul, he hated his message, and they stirred this crowd against Paul so that the same people that were wanting to worship in the morning end up throwing rocks at him, and they literally stone him to the point where Paul dies. God brings him back to life. But that's how barbaric and fickle these people were. But here's the heart. 
of the book of Galatians. Paul is writing to combat the false teaching that anything can be added to or improved upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. Because you see, there was a problem that arose in the early church. And you see, in the early church, many of the people who first came to faith in Christ, if you've studied the book of Acts, you know that on the day of Pentecost, when all millions of of Jewish people had come to Jerusalem to to celebrate Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 in the upper room, and all of a sudden this crowd gathers, and Peter gets up and preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. A couple weeks later, he preaches again, another 2,000 people. So all of a sudden, there's 5,000 people now gathering together, and most of them were Jewish. And this was the problem that many of these Jewish people were having in the first century that had come to Christ, is that they wanted to connect to Christ, but hold on to their Judaism, the rituals, the festivals, these various aspects of their Jewish faith. And so, and, and I think that's something that, that, that many of us here who have maybe come um, to faith in Christ from a previous uh, part of some other religious system, we, we can kind of understand this. Let me give an example. I know many, many people who have come to faith in Christ out of Catholicism. But early in their relationship with Jesus, they still have mixed in with their faith in Christ a lot of their traditions from Catholicism. How many of you were in that boat when you first came to Christ? Yeah, quite a few of you. Or maybe you came to to faith in Christ but you were brought up in a denomination of the Christian church that was very legalistic. You know, back in the, in the South, this is, you know, probably dating back years ago. I think they've moved, they progressed from this. But back in the South, in the Baptist church, um, they said that it was a sin for women to wear pants. Can you imagine that? It was a sin for women to wear makeup. These were teachings that were going on, you know, in the uh, Christian church, the Baptist churches in the South back in the 50s and 60s and even the early 70s. They would say, you know, that, that Christians can't dance. And that's the big question. Can Christians dance? And the answer is some can and some can't. Um, <laughs> But it was like, no, that's a sin. You you can't dance. You can't drink alcohol. You can't wear certain clothes. And some of you were brought up in that type of religious system. And sometimes it's hard to get past that, isn't it? You know, you come to faith in Christ and you've got all this baggage, all these things that you were, were taught. And a lot of it wasn't what was taught in the Bible, but it was, you know, the teaching of a particular church or denomination. Well, many of these new converts coming to Christ out of a Jewish background were holding on to their Jewish roots, but this was the problem. They were saying to these Gentile believers. This was the message that was being sent forth as the gospel started to spread to the Gentiles that they were telling them, it's great that you believe in Jesus. That's awesome. But if you really, really want to be saved, 
if you really, really want to go to heaven, you also need to become Jewish. And the big thing, especially in Galatia, that they were pushing was this, you need to be circumcised. Now imagine hearing that as a grown man living in the first century, you know? That was an unpleasant thing. And they were saying, you know, that's what you really, really need if you want to be saved. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles gathered together in what was known as the Jerusalem Council to address this very issue. How do we deal with the Galatians, with, with the Gentiles that are getting saved? And they basically, I'll sum it up, they basically came to this conclusion was that they should not, nothing should be added to put any trips upon the Galatians, or on the Gentiles, excuse me. That salvation was through grace alone, by faith alone, and this was the message that Paul was preaching. So this is the very thing that he's seeking to address amongst these Galatian believers because as we're going to see, they were being duped into turning away from the simple message of the gospel and they were wanting to add to their faith, add to their uh, a work. Oh, we need to be circumcised in order to really, really be saved. And so Paul's very passionate about this. And let's look at here beginning in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father who raised him from the dead. I want you to notice that, first of all, Paul addresses his apostleship. And the reason he does this is important because if Paul's apostleship can be challenged, then his message can be challenged. Now, the word apostle simply means sent one. You know, Jesus chose 12 apostles and sent them on a mission really to change the world. Now, we know that one of them, Judas, eliminated himself from that group. So there were 11. And the first apostles were sent out by Jesus had really a real unique place in the life of the Christian church and the history of the church because they were used in the birthing of the church, in the bringing forth of the word of God. Now, Paul was later added to this unique group of men, of these original apostles. And I want you to notice here in verse one that he was added not by men, that it wasn't like Peter and James and the other guys said, you know, hey, we, we lost Judas. We, we need to find another guy. They actually tried to do this. They picked a guy by the name of Matthias. But this isn't what happened with Paul. Paul was chosen directly by Jesus himself. Acts chapter 9 records Paul's radical conversion on the road to Damascus when he was Saul of Tarsus. If you're unfamiliar with that, read that later on your own. In fact, next week, as we get later into chapter 1, Paul talks about his conversion, and we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about that. But the reason why it's important that we see Paul's apostleship, as I said before, if his apostleship can be challenged, then so can his message. And the point that Paul's wanting all of us to see is that he was chosen to be an apostle by Jesus himself. Notice verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace have been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. And I want you to note this. Grace and peace are always in this order. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. And there's a reason for that. Because these two words really 
summarize the message of the gospel. We could say that the source of salvation is grace. That through God's unmerited favor, void of any human works, he made a way for man to be saved. God's grace is God's undeserved favor that he's bestowed upon us. That there's nothing that we can do to earn it, in other words. There's nothing that we can add to it. So the source of our salvation is grace. The nature of salvation is peace. When we allow the grace of God to touch our lives, we have peace with God. We have peace within And we have peace with each other as well. It's been said that grace is who God is and peace is the result of knowing him. Now notice in verse 4 and 5, Paul describes how this salvation that we enjoy that came by grace, the grace of God, was brought about. He says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice three things that he tells us here in in these verses. First of all, he tells us what Jesus did. Secondly, he tells us why he did it. And third, he tells us who he, it was done for, kind of the motivation of it. What did Christ do? The first thing he says in verse four is that he gave himself for our sins. And throughout the epistle to the Galatians, Paul is going to focus on the centrality of the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection from the dead is the foundation that our faith is built upon. So the first thing he tells us is what he did. He gave himself for our sins. Secondly, he tells us why. To deliver us, he says, from this present evil age. The word deliver means to rescue. Christianity is a rescue faith. This word deliver is used in Acts chapter 7 verse 14 to speak of the children of Israel being rescued from the bondage of e- in Egypt. In Acts chapter 12 verse 11 it speaks of Peter being rescued out of prison when he was about to be beheaded. In Acts chapter 23 verse 27 it speaks of Paul being rescued from this mob that was about to lynch him. But here, this word in the book of Galatians, rescue, delivered, is used metaphorically of our salvation. That we have been, he says, rescued from this present evil age. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what we need to understand. The Bible divides history into two ages. There is this age and there is the age that is to come. There's this age and there's the kingdom age. Now, this age started in the garden at the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, man forfeited this world into the hands of the devil. It's why the world is called, or why Satan is called the God of this world. And so this is an evil age because it's been marked by sin and rebellion. Now, the age that which is to come started at the cross, the work of redemption, redemption age the work of jesus coming and dying upon the cross but here's the thing jesus has not yet laid claim to all that is rightfully is he has redeemed us he has rescued us but he hasn't laid claim yet to this planet so presently these ages are overlapping and when a person is born again this is what happens to them they are transferred from this age this evil age into the age which is to come 
or they're transferred, we could put it this way, from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul puts it this way in the book of Colossians. He says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So there's two kingdoms. And we come to Christ, we're taken out of this present evil age, this present kingdom, and we're transferred into the kingdom of God. So the purpose of Christ's death, understand this, is not just to forgive us of our sins, but it's the fact that we haven't just been forgiven, but we've been given new life, and we have been given a kingdom mindset. That's what God's wanting us to understand. We belong to another kingdom. We belong. It's why we, Jesus said, and when you pray, say, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, tr- we're saying, hey, I'm identifying with the reality that I've been transferred from this, this kingdom, this present evil age, into your kingdom. And now I want to walk in that So Paul tells us what Jesus did. He gave himself for our sins. He tells him why he did it to rescue us from this present evil age. And then thirdly, he tells us who he did it for, the motivation. Notice the end of verse four. He says, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So here's what he's saying. Jesus did this to please his heavenly Father. Jesus' desire was always to bring glory to to the Father. And this is crucial to note. You see, any teaching that adds or subtracts to the work of Christ doesn't glorify God, but it glorifies man. If salvation can be earned, then praise be to me, right? If I can earn salvation, then praise be to me. I can say, you know, and we hear people saying this, I changed my life. I cleaned up my act. I followed the plan. I made it. I did it. It was all me, me, me. And for $30, you can buy my plan, you know? That's what we hear today. That's the mentality. And this is one of the things that is always at the heart of legalism. It's pride. I achieved my salvation. I earned it. I achieved a blessing from God by doing X, Y, and Z. I earned it. But the message of the gospel is always this, that Jesus did it all. He did it all. And we believe that. We embrace that. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that our salvation was by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So legalism occurs when a person tries to attach some type of work to the finished work of Christ. And you know what that's like? That's like trying to improve upon a Van Gogh, the famous artist Van Gogh, one of his paintings, with finger paints. You know, here's the Van Gogh. I'm going to make this better. I'm going to get all the finger paints out. And, And it doesn't make it better. It only ruins the painting. And that's the point. But you know, there's another thing that is at the heart of legalism. And it's this, that misery loves company. Here's the mentality. If I can't do certain things as a Christian, you shouldn't be able to do them either. Misery loves company. 
That's, that's what happens when people become legalistic. They start putting trips on people. Some of you have been around here long enough that you remember way back in the day, and I'm not throwing him under the bus when I say this because he admits that he was being legalistic, but some of you were here back when Brian Broderson was the pastor, and he went through this phase like a long time ago where it was like Christians should not be watching television. So he was like, I'm throwing away my TV, and you should be throwing away your TV too, and all the these people in our church were throwing away their TV, right? Some of you did that. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But if you were, you know, cruising around for garage sales during that day, you might have been able to get some really sweet TVs in some people's trashes in the day, back in the day. But the Bible doesn't say anything about whether you should watch television or not watch television. What the Bible teaches us as followers of Jesus Christ is that we need to be discerning viewers, same thing happened as related to secular music. Secular versus sacred. Is there really such a thing? Or is it just music? And some of it glorifies God, and some of it's vile, and some of it's just neutral. And we need to learn as believers how to be discerning listeners. You know, one of the bands I love is the band U2. And some of their songs glorify God. Others of their songs are just kind of neutral. They speak about things that aren't overtly Christian, but have meaning, like, like justice and mercy. And so we're learning. It's not a sense of, well, you don't do this and don't do that. That's, that's the law. That's legalism. The gospel says that Jesus said, hey, it's done. And now I want to walk in that. And this is what Paul is seeking to address here. Legalism occurs when I try to put my own convictions on someone else, and Paul is battling both of those ideas of legalism in this book. Let's continue in verse 6. He says, I marvel, he's getting to the point here, that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. There's only one gospel, note that. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. I mentioned that the Galatians were a fickle people, impressionable. And here's what happened. They were turning away from the gospel of grace, wanting to attach to their salvation, this idea that they needed to be circumcised. And this phrase turning away in the Greek is very, very strong. It means to change sides or to defect. It's the idea of deserting, of transferring allegiance. It's like when a soldier is in one army and he defects to the other side, to the other army. It's like, it's like when a padre becomes a dodger. Remember when Adrian Gonzalez did that, you know? I mean, it, it's that type of thing, you know, that type of defection. And this is what Paul's accusing the Galatians of. They were in danger of becoming religious turncoats, spiritual deserters. Now, the verb tense implies that they were not there yet, but they were heading in that direction. But I want you to note something here. Don't miss this. They weren't just turning away from a teaching to embrace another teaching, but they were turning away from a person. Don't miss that. He says that you're turning away from him who called you. You're turning away from Christ. And this is the point. To turn away from the true gospel is always to turn turn away from the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity, you see, is not a truth to be learned, but a person to be experienced. 
And so anytime the, any kind of religious ritual, that anytime you try to attach some type of religious ritual to your faith in Christ in order to earn God's approval, you are turning from the truth. You're not just turning from the truth, but you're turning away from Jesus himself. Or anytime that you try to improve upon the finished work of Christ through our own human effort, you're actually ruining the work of Christ. That's why he uses the term there in verse 7, you pervert the gospel. Now, what Paul says next is heavy. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, he's repeating this for emphasis. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, now we read this thing, I think, man, Paul, that's harsh. And you're not being very loving there, are you? I mean, gosh, that, that, that's, is, that's kind of extreme. And Paul responds in verse 10, for I do not persuade, or do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Or if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people. I'm not trying to be nice here. This is a serious issue. I'm not trying to win people's approval, but, but God, if, I, if pleasing people was my goal, I couldn't be a true servant of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, Jesus said something similar to this. Remember, Jesus said if anyone causes a little one to stumble, it would be better for that person that a millstone would be put around his neck and he'd be thrown into the ocean. Now, a millstone was a giant stone that they used to crush the grain. So if you have a millstone put around your neck and you're thrown into the ocean, guess what? You go straight to the bottom, okay? It's heavy. Now, I think most of us here would probably applaud that as it relates to somebody, you know, Say, child abuse. Yeah, millstone, throw them overboard. I mean, that would be our mentality. What Paul's telling us here is that God takes very, very seriously when people are stumbled or abused, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so this is a sober, sober warning to any teacher. But here's what I want to do tonight as we kind of wrap this up before we get into our group time, to just kind of bring this home. Most of us here are not going to get off track in preaching another gospel. Most of us here, if not all of us, are pretty secure in our relationship with Jesus. We know the message of the gospel. We're grounded in the truth. But there is something that even followers of Jesus Christ can fall into, and it's this. It's what I like to call a performance-based acceptance mentality. It's a mentality that says this, okay, I know that my salvation is based upon the work of Christ, what he did. But my blessing and my being in favor with God is based upon my performance, how I perform, what I'm doing. I live this way as a Christian for a number of years where I felt If I was reading my Bible, here's the key word, enough. If I was praying enough, if I was serving enough, if I was witnessing enough, I would be blessed. But here's the problem. Performance-based acceptance as it relates to our relationship with God produces two types of uh, countenances. The first is when I'm performing well, man, 
I'm full of pride. I'm like, gosh, I'm a really, really good Christian. I don't know what's wrong with these other people, you know? I don't know why they can't pray as much as I do. And, and, and anybody that's struggling, I mean, oh, there's no compassion for that person whatsoever. It's a mentality. You're like, I don't know why they can't, you know, pray as much as me and read as much as me. And they're not as radical as me. Now, that type of believer, they're hard to be around. They're very I- idealistic, holier than thou. If you were like me, very pharisaical. How many of you were Pharisees at one point in your Christian walk? Okay, <laughs> I think a lot of us were in that place. It's, it's, it's that pride. But here's the other mentality. The other mentality is a countenance that is that of condemnation. Because if I'm not performing well, then I'm condemned. Then I'm like, oh, I'm such a loser. Man, I don't have it together. And here's the sad reality when you fall into that mentality of performance-based acceptance. There's always somebody who's doing it better than you. That's the problem. You can say, man, I prayed for an hour today. And your friend says, I prayed for two. And you're like, oh, man, you know. You're like, hey, forget the one-year Bible, the Bible in a year. I did it in six months. And your friend says, I did it in 30 days. And you're like, no way, you know. And, and suddenly, you know, you, you feel like you're second class. And then here's the other thing that just throws you for a loop. It's when you are doing everything that you think is like what you need to be doing to perform in the right way. And yet you feel like you're running against the wind. There's just, you know, just you're struggling. And then there's some guy that you just know is a flake, as a, spiritually speaking. And he's getting blessed. Like he gets a raise or a promotion. And you're like, that's not fair. You know, I know that guy. And I've been doing everything right. What's up, God? So what happens when we fall into that performance-based acceptance mentality. Performance-based acceptance is a trap of legalism. Here's the message of the gospel. God accepts me not based upon my performance, but on the performance of Jesus, what he did. God accepts me not for who I am, but who I am in Christ. I want you to notice verse 6 again. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. The King James Version is maybe a little more accurate here. It says, called you from him, or you were called from into the grace of Christ. And that's the idea, that you've been immersed in God's grace. You see, the Bible teaches that we've been saved by grace, that we stand by grace, that we're sustained by grace. Guys, it's all about grace. It's all about what God did for me and what he did for us. And we're living in that. We're rejoicing in that. We're accepting that. We're, we're, we're realizing that, not, I'm, not that I'm trying to earn God's favor, but I realize I have it. Not because of who I am, but because of who I am in Christ. So then the question comes up, and we're going to end with this. People say, well, why should we pray? Why should we serve? If it doesn't improve your standing with God, I want to give you two quick reasons. The first is this. When... When I understand his grace and I understand his love, I want to bless him. It's the natural response of understanding what he's done for me. 
I'm not doing anything trying to earn God's favor, but it's just all in the response to the realization that I have it. The second reason I do these things is although I understand that I can't do anything to improve my standing with God, when I do those things, praying, serving, you know, that type of thing, it improves his standing with me. What do I mean by that? Think of it this way. Let's say you have an uncle that you've never met living in North Carolina, and he dies. And he has no living relatives, and so he leaves his inheritance to you. And you find out that he's left you a house. And you think, oh, that's cool, that's nice. And you're thinking it's probably a fixer-upper. But you find out that it's not a fixer-upper, it's a mansion. And you go to see it, and you find out that not only is it a beautiful mansion, it's fully furnished with the most wonderful of things. There's two cars that go with it that are fully paid for. Property taxes are paid for for life. There's a maid service that's paid for for life. There's a gardener service that's paid for for life. And every month, as long as you live in the house, there's a new surprise. That only magnifies your uncle's generosity in your eyes, right? Now, if that was the case, don't you think that you'd find yourself wanting to find out a little bit more about your uncle? Like, man, what made this guy tick? How do you get his money? I mean, if that was the case and he did all of that for you, I mean, you might even take his picture and hang it in the living room. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, that's my, that's, it's all because of him. And I think definitely we'd, we would find ourselves thinking, man, I wish I had the chance to know my uncle. Well, same thing is true. Nothing I do changes my standing with God. He loves me. I'm in Christ. But when I dig into his word, when I meditate upon the person of Christ, it improves his standing with me. But here's the difference. He's not dead like your uncle. Jesus is alive. And he wants to be your friend. And he wants you to get to know him. And so here's what happens. The more I study his word, the more that you know, I gather in settings like this, I come to see what he's really about. And something happens in my heart that I begin to appreciate him more. And I want to worship him. The more that I learn about him, the more that I understand all that he's done for me. And I know there's nothing I could do. It'd be impossible to pay him back. But, but my heart is, I, I want to give to him. I want to be involved in what his heart is toward because I'm understanding who I am in Jesus and how much he loves me. It's the response of who he is. And so that, my friends, is why the study of this book is so important. We need to grow in our understanding of grace. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks or this summer as we go through this. Let's pray together, and then we'll go ahead and move into our group time. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for the grace that is in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. That the work is finished and we embrace the work that you did by grace. And we know that we have favor with you because we are in Jesus tonight. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would bless our time of discussion in these groups, that you'd be glorified in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.